Well, thank you, Scott. So I've been well, well introduced already, and you see the text before you as being uh, John 15. So if you want to prepare, that's where we indeed are going to go today. Now, as I look around the room, I, uh, I see quite a few red faces, which says to me that I think there's a lot of gardeners out there. Or maybe just the fact that a lot of you are farmers and that you work outside all the time. I heard there's been a lot of roofing and shingling going on. So you've been busy and the sun's been good and uh, it's good to see the red faces. So the uh, scripture we're going to today is that whole metaphor that Scott had mentioned already, which is a gardening metaphor. And so, yeah, for you avid gardeners, um, this is your text because it's an awesome text. Now, of course, because the scriptures is set in a Mediterranean climate, it's a little bit different than here. And so, of course, their big crop is vine growing. And so uh, the whole metaphor that Jesus is going to talk about has a lot more to do with vines than perhaps the kind of gardening we're used to. Now, it's funny, when I, um, when I went home to talk to my wife, Una, and I'm telling her about, oh, yeah, everyone in Swift Current's into gardening. It's such a big deal there. Everyone has a garden. And, and then she looks at me and she goes, do you mean like a vegetable garden? Now, some of you might wonder why I said that, except for Dom over there, he'll get this, because my wife was brought up in Scotland and Northern Ireland. But um, when we say garden here, we automatically think vegetable garden. But to the rest of the British world, when they say the garden, it's like their green space, or what we would call our yard. So you know like Downton Abbey and all those kind of shows, when they go for walks in the garden? Well, that's the garden. So she always mocks me for this, and there's so many words like that that we fight over. No, we actually never fight over them. We probably laugh over them more than anything. But uh, Yeah, so the kind of gardener and garden in this picture from the scripture today is all about vines and vine growing. So the metaphor has been explained a little bit, is that Jesus basically says in his metaphor that God the Father is the gardener, that he, Jesus, is the vine, and that we are the branches. So that's the metaphor that he's, that he's wanting us to understand. Now, a good friend of mine uh, also happens to be a pastor as well, but he has a favorite book that he talks about all the time. And this book is called The Trellis or the Vine. And what he loves about this book is this book is also a metaphor about how the church grows. So the whole idea of the trellis and the vine is that the trellis represents the structures and the vine represents the new growth or the life. So what he loves about this metaphor is that the church needs much growth and new life in order to be an effective church. But for that growth or new life to actually have some direction or fruitfulness or something to grow on, it actually needs a trellis. And so the trellis is the structure, and that's important too. And so he just loves to talk about how when good structures work together with good new life, it's how the church should be, right? So sometimes churches get off track because it's all about the trellis, right? So they put tons of time and work and money into the structures, into the buildings, into the programs, into all of the things that they think they need in order to be successful or be a great church. But if they neglect putting emphasis and focus into the vine growth, into the fresh growth of new life in people, we can get off track that way. Yet at the same time, other churches might put so much focus on the relational, on the life-giving, on the, on the spiritual, which is so good, 
but if, there, but if the structures aren't working, and if the programs aren't working, and if there's no direction for the vine to grow, it doesn't grow well, and it's not very fruitful. So I just wanted to share that little side with you in this metaphor, just to say that's a big part of what this transitional year will be about. For us as a church, for us as a leadership, to see, hey, where are, how are we doing in our trellis work? And how are we doing in our new vine growth? Are we, are we finding that balance to be a healthy church? Because, see, that's, that's probably the biggest idea of this gardening metaphor that Jesus is talking about. The whole idea of healthy growth, fruitful growth. And, that, and that's his heart for the church, you know? We want to focus on being a healthy church because healthy churches grow. Just like healthy gardens grow. Healthy crops grow. Healthy children grow. You focus on health and growth happens. And so we want to become a healthy body because I believe that's key to being a growing body. So anyway, that's just part of, part of the work of transition and also just a little bit more on this metaphor that Jesus is talking about. So let's go to the scripture now, to uh, John chapter 15. Now, if some of you are wondering, you're going, wait a minute, Don, you were in John chapter 14 last week and you skipped the last half of the chapter. Just want to let you know I did not skip it. I actually switched the weeks because the end of chapter 14 is about the Holy Spirit and next week is Pentecost. So I thought, I want to speak on the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday. So I just jumped ahead to chapter 15. So just in case you were worried or wondering, we're still on track. We will cover all of John as we, as we go through it together as a church. So at the beginning of John 15... Jesus gives his final great I am statement. Remember, there's been these I am statements that have been so powerful through the book of John. And here's the final one when Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father, he is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it will even be more fruitful. So why did Jesus say, that he was the true vine. Now, this metaphor was very, very common to the people of Israel and to the Jews that would have heard Jesus speaking. In fact, the Jews, as Scott told us already this morning, knew that they, as Israel, were God's vine. And so they loved this metaphor. This was who they were. They were God's vine. So for Jesus to have the audacity to say, I am the true vine... Now, the historian Josephus suggests that Jesus was sharing this in the temple area in front, in front of this huge um, vine that everyone knew was the picture of who they were as Israel. So for Jesus to stand there and say, I am the true vine, you need to get this, the scope of what he's saying. Now, to understand how Israel saw themselves as God's vine, just want to share with you quickly a couple other uh, passages from uh, the Old Testament. Isaiah 5-7 says, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for, right for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And Jeremiah 2-21, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Now, what's so interesting and ironic to me is that even though the Jews in Israel loved this metaphor because they are God's vine, it's interesting how all of their prophets primarily talked about them being the vine 
in, in more of a negative way like this. It was basically like, yes, you are God's vine, but why are you not acting like it? And most of these words, if you look through the prophets, were actually rebuke. But I just wanted you to get the, just the tension of the situation of Jesus being in the temple, surrounded by the Jewish people, making these claims, then saying, I am the true vine. Once again, what is he declaring? Now, as he says that he's the true vine, he then right away talks about how the father likes to do some pruning. Now, just wondering how you feel about pruning. One author said that pruning is abiding even under the knife. Now, when we think about pruning, and, and now we use the metaphor to spiritualize it, it's about how God does pruning in our lives, how God does pruning to us, the church. Now, for you gardeners out there, you can tell me way more about this. I don't say I know a lot about pruning, but I do know that sometimes when you prune, it actually can look good because you kind of clean, clean things up a little bit. However, other times when you prune, it kind of is discouraging because it looks like you cut back all the nice green stuff and now it looks bare again. And that's kind of the same way in our spiritual lives, right? When, when God does pruning in our lives, sometimes we can see the good in it. Most often we just feel the pain of it. But we need to understand what Jesus is saying here, that the Father's act of pruning is for us to be more fruitful. And that's, that's what Jesus is, is trying to say here and remind us. Now, it's interesting, if we go on now to verse 4, so just get, get my text here. So Jesus was saying, talking about pruning, and then in verse 3, sorry, he says, you are already clean because, the word I've, because of the word I've spoken to you. So he's talking about pruning, and then all of a sudden he says, now you're already clean. Now, what we're supposed to remember is the foot washing story from a few chapters back. Do you remember when Jesus wanted to wash the disciples' feet, and then Peter said, you'll never wash my feet, and then Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part of me, Then he said, okay, well, then not just my feet, but my whole body, and then Jesus said, well, I don't need to wash your whole body, because you're already clean, and remember, we talked about that declaration of, about Jesus, and what he was about to do, and how his work makes us clean, and so, so John and Jesus here wants us to remember this, and to connect pruning to being clean, and actually, it's the same root word because we're supposed to get this. The whole idea that, that we are cleaned by our belief and our obedience to Jesus' words. And that's really what pruning is. And so that's, that's what, he's, what he's trying to say here. So let's go now to, to verse 4 of John chapter 15. So in this next little section, so I'm going to read from 4 all the way to, the, to 11. And in my translation, the word that keeps being used over and over again is the word remain. Some of you might have a translation that says abide. Maybe there's some other words. So I want you to count how many times in these few verses the word remain or abide. So here we go, starting at verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So how many remains? Eleven, that is correct. We've got some good counters in the room. I was worried that maybe some other translations might have a different number. But no, eleven times, over and over again, this, this idea, abide or remain. Remain in me, remain in me. Sorry, I'm hesitating on the fly here because I was planning to do something. Okay, let's do this quick. Rather than me just unpacking, um, what are the reasons or the benefits to us remaining? How about I ask you? So it's kind of like Bible study time. I'm coming down. The guys at the back said I could do this. So I know you'll have to be brave, but this is, here's my simple question. We don't have time for many sermons, but just from those verses, from that text, what jumps out at you as a major benefit or reason to remain in the vine? What's good about it? What's, what's the benefit from remaining in the vine? Which one sticks out to you? I know I'm really putting you on the spot here. You're going, speakers are not supposed to get off the stage and hand the mic to us to talk. This is too weird. No hand yet? I should, oh, here we go. Thank you. If the little branch is connected to the vine and remains connected, then the fruit that's over here will come out on that branch. What does that mean? Like, to stay true to the source? Good thought. I won't answer the question, but I'll let that question and thought go out to all of you. Someone else back here. Verse 7, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. Yeah. How does that verse mess us up? I know. We're actually going to talk more about that whole concept next week when we talk about the Holy Spirit, because I think the connection and all of that is some, there's, there's a key in there. But thank you for that. Anyone else? What else do you see as benefits or what sticks out to you about remaining in Christ, remaining in the vine? you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Yeah. Very good. Very first time. Thank you. Anyone else? Oh, thank you. In verse 5, it says that apart from God, we can do nothing, or from, apart from labor. Uh, yeah. Without. Yeah. Apart from God, we can do nothing. Very true. Well, in verse 11 tells us that if you remain in his love, that you will begin to experience the abundant joy that God's promised us. Yeah. That's very important joy. Anyone else here? Well, Mona makes me walk all the way across the room just to show how out of shape I am. <laughs> if it's connected, it's not going to be withered. Hmm. Yeah. Cut off and separated, they wither, and then they live in the fire. Interesting that the withering happened before the fire. <laughs> you can always take metaphors too far, too. <laughs> Anyone else over here? Oh, yes, thank you. She said there will be evidence that others can see if you remain in the vine. That's a great point. Evidence of fruit, 
The fruit is the evidence of remaining in the vine. Absolutely. Yeah, well, you've almost got through my list, so thank you. So I used to lead a church where this was common. We met in a way that there was always kind of a discussion time in the midst of the sermon. So I don't know, some of you probably like it and some of you hate it. But uh, what I love is I know that you are students of the word and you love the word. And I know that the Holy Spirit speaks through us collectively as the body of Christ. And so I just appreciate you being willing to share some of your thoughts and heart and questions. So you kind of gave, my, gave, gave the list that I had that I listed too. So I don't need to unpack it, I'll read it quick. So the, the benefits that I saw in abiding was the incredible promise of God, of Jesus saying, I'll be in you. The in us idea. The in us is where all of the power and the strength comes to be able to live our lives. And not only just to live our lives, but that's where all the power and the strength and the nutrients come so that we can bear fruit. That whole incredible mystery of Christ in us, the spirit in us. All of this being connected to the vine, the father being the gardener, like that whole image also just shows us how much purpose we have, what we're invited into. Spiritual family, that, that we're right in the heart of God's purpose and, and his power to accomplish it. And then you mentioned God's love, just how he, you know, when we're abiding in him, his love flows freely through us and through the community. And then, Tim, I think you mentioned this complete joy. Isn't that amazing in there, too, that it's in that, it's in that abiding that that supernatural joy comes from? We were talking a bit about that. I was trying to encourage the worship team today to say, you know, we don't have to fake or muster up joy when the Holy Spirit gives us joy. And sometimes that kind of joy is beyond just the fact that life is great right now or it's sunny outside or whatever. Like, it's the amazing kind of joy is when we're going through the tough stuff, when life really is hard and not working out, and yet something in our spirit that's beyond explanation gives us joy. That's the supernatural Holy Spirit kind of joy, and that's what being connected to the vine brings. So great, thank you for, for helping me with that. So just a couple quotes from a from the NIV commentary, just summing up these passages. Um, it says, discipleship is not just a matter of acknowledging who Jesus is. It is having Jesus spiritually connected to our inner lives. And then one of you referred to this too. Fruit bearing is not a test. Rather, fruit bearing is a byproduct. Now it's important, and it's, it's interesting how how pretty much every commentator I read on this wanted, very much wanted to make the point. Don't read this passage like somehow it's a test. Where's the fruit? If you don't have the fruit, then maybe you're not a true Christian. That's not really the way we're supposed to see it. The idea of this passage is, is that when we're abiding in the vine, when we embrace these incredible promises, this incredible relationship, all of this that Jesus is offering us, when we embrace that, live in that, stay connected, know who we are in Christ, that when all of that is real and true in our life, we're not going, oh, I hope I can bear fruit today. Come on, fruit, pop out. You know, like the tree isn't sitting there struggling going, I'm going to try to pop out some fruit today. No, it happens because the nutrients and the health and the water and everything else is working together in that abiding, healthy process so that fruit becomes a natural byproduct. And that's the same in our lives. When we're abiding, it's just natural. It, the fruit comes out of us. 
And you got, we got to understand that sometimes we get a little mixed up with fruit because we overly think about it in terms of, well, how can I, how can I say this gently? But I know being a pastor and being involved in the evangelical church, often fruit was totally seen by people being able to say how many people they led to Christ or numbers of evangelism and that kind of thing was kind of always the context of fruit. And it's wonderful fruit when you lead people to Christ. Don't hear me wrong. That is a beautiful part of what we do. But ultimately, what Jesus is talking here about is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The traits that mark us as true disciples of Jesus. The traits that mark us one of his. And when, those, when we're abiding in the vine, it, those fruit become a byproduct. They become a natural part of who we are. And you know what? When we are fruit-bearing Christians, when we are a fruit-bearing church, guess what happens? People notice and are attracted to Jesus. So, so much that, yeah. So, but let's go on to the next part of the text. So go down now to verse 12. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for, for friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Now, do you get the audacity of what Jesus is declaring here? Can you actually embrace the idea that Jesus may be saying to you, I call you friend? Now, here's what's... This is amazing. Again, so you had the picture earlier of Jesus making this I am statement in front of the Jews and in their temple area and, you know, knowing that they're the vine and all of that. But now he's saying, you can be God's friend. Now you've got to understand, to the Jews, there's only two people in the Old Testament scripture that are ever referred to as God's friend. You can look it up. They are Moses and Abraham. And there are no more heroes of the faith than Moses and Abraham. And yet Jesus is now looking at his disciples and his followers and he's saying, if you obey me, if you follow me, if you abide in me, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. So according to this text, how do we become God's friend? Verse 14, right? You are my friends if you do what I command. So what is Jesus' command? Verse 12 and verse 17, just in case we missed it. His command is, love each other. His command is, love each other. Now when I think of that, I often wonder, why do we right away when we hear, follow Jesus' commands, right away most of us, I think, go to rule-keeping we got to follow all the rules. That's what Jesus means. If we can follow all the rules and get it all right and become this awesome, perfect, rule-abiding, commandment-following Christian, then I'll be pleasing to God and he might call me a friend. Hmm. This passage 
always reminds me of a little story that's told in the Synoptic Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this little story, and it's the story about the rich young ruler. And I'm going to read the version from Mark chapter 10. It says this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. I love the next verse. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I just can't imagine this. I can't imagine going up to Jesus and saying, basically, you know, Jesus, there's still something missing. Tell me, what's missing in my life? What do I need to do to be saved? And then Jesus goes, well, follow the commandments. And then for me to say, I've followed them all since I was a boy. Like, I just, some, like, I don't know if he was being arrogant. I'm not suggesting that necessarily. But just the fact that to him, he had followed all the rules. He'd followed all the commandments since he was a boy. Why is there still something missing? But you know, I could unpack the rest of that story. But for our purposes here this morning, you know, that, that's what we often do too. We misunderstand that Jesus' commands are all about rule keeping. And yet what does Jesus so plainly say in this text? If you want to be my friend, you do what I command. And then just in case we don't get it, he says it twice. What is his command? Love each other. Love each other. You know, many of the New Testament writings go on to talk about this whole concept. And if you study it closely, really what, when you talk about spiritual maturity, at the end of the day, the number one way to mark the evidence of spiritual maturity is our ability to love. It's not about great knowledge and wisdom and learning great depths of discernment and spiritual gifts. Those are fine too. But ultimately, the greatest mark of maturity is our ability to love. And that's what Jesus keeps wanting us to try to get. So how do we respond to this text today? Now, some of you said some great things and the whole idea of staying connected to that vine, loving each other and bearing lasting fruit. So important. Can I encourage us this way today? Can we allow loving each other to rise to the top of how we see obedience to Jesus? Let that rise to the top. Remember when Jesus was confronted? Jesus, what's, what's the greatest law? You know, and he summed it up and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? The whole law and prophets can be summed up in that. Jesus. Can I encourage us in our obedience and being friends of Jesus to have it be walked out in how we love each other? Probably the hardest thing to do. I also want to encourage us today to respond by thinking about our identity. Do you identify as Jesus' friend? Does that seem oh so distant? Because to you, God is distant, and Jesus, 
yeah, he's good, but because he's so good, he's probably disappointed in me and looking down at me, and I'm... Is that how you see your identity in Christ? Or can you embrace this truth that Jesus is saying, that I no longer call you servants. I've called you friends. And you are clean by believing in me and following me, embracing me. I declare you clean. I'll do the pruning and... Yep, I'll, lots of stuff in your life, the ups and downs and the good and bad, but that's friendship. That's the relationship I'm inviting into. Can I encourage you, embrace that, that identity today? And you know, as I thought about this identity piece and how it can relate to us personally, I also thought about how identity relates to us as a church. And I just want to humbly offer this to you Bridgeway Community Church. You know, as I heard about you before I came, and as I've talked to many of you already, it becomes very evident to me that often, I'm not going to say always, but often our identity is that we are the hurting church. We are the fighting church. We are the troubled church. We are the broken church. And okay, you've been through some difficult times. There's hurting, there's brokenness. This process is not about sweeping stuff under the rug. It's about dealing with things in a good and godly way. But can I encourage us to move on to our true identity? Can we finally move on and say, you know what, there's the reality in the fact that there's hurting and that there's issues to deal with. But let that not be our identity. Can we declare together today that we are not going to embrace that identity anymore, but that we are going to embrace the identity of who Jesus sees us as? You know, as I continue to meet all of you, and I've had, I've had been so blessed to be in so many homes already and meet so many of you, and I, and I want to keep doing that. But, you know, I am, I am not meeting, like, hurting, broken people that are done. Maybe you feel that way sometimes and you're faking it good for me, I don't know. But no, I I feel like I'm meeting people who are hopeful, people who love their church. Yeah, you're upset about stuff. Yeah, you want some things to change. Yeah, you hope this process will, will have real meaning and clarity and all of that. Yes, it's great to hope all that. But when I look around this room and the people I'm meeting, I just see so much potential. I just see so many gifts, so much love for this church. Like when I've asked people about this church, even people who felt they've needed to leave for a season, I don't hear negativity about the church. I hear I miss my church. I love my church. This is my family. This is who you are. That's your identity. You are family. You are friends of Christ. You are a church filled with spiritual gifts and gifted people and a vision and a structure that can move you forward in amazing ways. Can I encourage you to embrace that identity? Let our identity change personally. Let's ask the Spirit of God to change our identity as how we see ourselves as a church. So with that, I'm just wondering how to close this service. Feels like an abrupt, abrupt closure. As you could tell, I'm kind of the response guy. Well, let me just give us a few moments just to pray quietly. And again, within your spirit, as you listen to God's spirit speak to you, ask him about your identity. Ask him to reveal it to you. You are his friend.
his clean one, his called one that he loves, died for, lives for. And then in, our, in the quietness of our hearts, can we pray for our church? That through a time of healing, we can embrace our true identity and move on from an old identity. Let's be the church of Jesus Christ, friends of Jesus. So let's bow in prayer together. Oh, Holy Spirit, come. Pour out in this room and speak to your dear daughters and sons, to your friends. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, as we pray. So Lord Jesus, in your word today, you said that apart from you, we can do nothing. And we certainly all acknowledge that. And yet, Lord, the miracle is, is that in you all things are possible. The miracle is, is what you invite us into. So I pray, Holy Spirit, for everyone here today who you spoke to and reminded them of their true identity in you, I just pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you would just seal that within their hearts. And Spirit of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we bow in your presence and we lift up our church to you, we pray for your healing and we pray for your wisdom and leadership in this next season. And Lord, that you would begin to change your identity, that we would be a healthy, growing church the Church of Jesus Christ, Bridgeway Community Church, a light to this community. Lord, we know that you can do all things. So Lord, may we stay connected to you in every way. Oh Lord, let your love flow through this congregation. Oh Lord, let your command to love each other be our top priority. And may that healing love bring the new identity that we so desperately need. And so I pray this all together in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the Lord bless you and keep you. And may his face shine upon you and give you hope. Go in peace.